everybody. Alex Newman here with The New American. And uh, continuing on our series, we've brought you uh, a, a large number of doctors who, unfortunately, you're not hearing enough from in the uh, mainstream media, if you will. But they have important things to say. They have valuable things to say. And uh, we think that you, uh, as uh, as a patient, as somebody who is also you know, stuck in this COVID pandemic and, and all the hysteria associated with it, you deserve to hear a range of opinions. And so with that in mind, we have a very special guest for you today, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough. And, and he's got more names and titles after his name than you could ever begin to imagine. Uh, he also is, is unique in a way. He actually is doing the hands-on work. He is treating the COVID patients. He's been treating the COVID patients for a while now. He's got some uh, very interesting protocols. Uh, he has also a master's degree in public health. Uh, he has, uh, of course, a medical degree. He's a professor of medicine at Texas A&M. He also is uh, very broadly published. I mean, name a, a prestigious medical journal. His uh, work has appeared in there. He's got more than 1,000 publications. He's also got more than 600 citations in the National Library of medicine more than anybody else in his field. Uh, he's won uh, in incredible awards. He's just an uh, incredible guest we have with us. Uh, Dr. McCullough, thank you so much for being with us. And to start off with, just tell us a little bit about your experience treating COVID patients. Uh, what's that been like? Are you seeing success? Well, Alex, thanks for having me on the program. And let me state that these are my opinions and not necessarily those of, of others or my institutions. And I redirected my entire academic career towards COVID-19 when it hit last year because I really saw a void. There was a tremendous effort on trying to save lives in the hospital. It was all hands on deck for medical doctors, and there really was nothing for outpatients with COVID-19. So uh, I made a courageous statement uh, very early on in March. I said, listen, COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths are both bad endpoints. I'm gonna put together a team of doctors and we're gonna figure out how to stop these hospitalizations and death, and I did it. And we put together a team of uh, doctors, US doctors and Italians. We published our first findings in the American Journal of Medicine in 2020. It's still the most downloaded and utilized paper in all of COVID-19 from the American Journal of Medicine. And then a follow-up paper in reviews in cardiovascular medicine and a dedicated supplemental issue in December of 2020. And these two papers uniquely taught doctors how to treat patients with COVID-19 as an outpatient, uh, they've been associated with a reduction in hospitalization and death by 85%. And it's based on the premise that we don't have large randomized trials. We won't have them. We won't have guidelines. It, those take many years to come forward. This is a fatal viral infection. The single drugs don't work that we have to use just like with acute HIV and hepatitis C and other viral illnesses. We have to use multiple drugs in combination. What we found is it takes about four to six drugs to be used in combination. We leverage small clinical trials and observational studies with a signal of benefit and acceptable safety. So tell us a little bit about this protocol, if you will. Uh, you, you mentioned four to six drugs in combination. What drugs are those? And uh, how does it work that it's treating people? And why is this not being more broadly discussed on, on television? Why is this not on the front page of every newspaper? People are dying, and, and yet uh, you, you've got a, a method to help here. Well, it's absolutely critical we get the information out. I was invited to testify in the U.S. Senate on November 19th of last year. I've testified in the Texas Senate. New Hampshire Senate, Colorado General Assembly. In fact, governments are trying to break through the media block 
on early treatment and get information to patients. The American Association of Physicians and Surgeons publishes a home treatment guide. It's the most frequently downloaded COVID resource for Americans. It was downloaded last year over 500,000 times, utilized over millions of times for early home treatment. The current state of the protocol involves the following. Individuals over age 50, uh, with medical problems or younger people presenting with severe symptoms, that means about a quarter of adults would need treatment, uh, should receive an infusion of an emergency use authorized monoclonal antibody. And the current uh, product on the market is by Regeneron. It's a combination of two antibodies, uh, a Charizdimavav and Indimavav. It's a, a combination product, takes an hour to infuse. Patients go home, and after that, we can start what's called sequence multidrug therapy. We use a nutraceutical bundle, which can be helpful to everyone. It includes uh, uh, vitamin C, vitamin D, uh, zinc, quercetin, uh, and, and this, th these vitamins are not curative, but they're thought to be helpful. Clearly, deficiencies are related to uh, increased risk, so we, why not? Uh, we use them. And then after that, we use intracellular anti-infectives, so they're combinations uh, hydroxychloroquine, the most widely studied uh, uh, intracellular uh, um, anti-infective, plus doxycycline or azithromycin, or ivermectin, another one, plus one of those two antibiotics. And then outside the United States, specifically, there's an oral antiviral approved by regulatory agencies to treat COVID-19. That's called favipiravir. That's used in Russia, uh, in uh, Pakistan, India, uh, Japan, and elsewhere. So so once we cover the intracellular anti-infectives, we use inhaled budesonide, randomized trial from the UK called the STOIC trial. That's available in the US. It's called Pomacort. More severe pulmonary symptoms, we use oral prednisone, just like we would in asthma. And uniquely with COVID-19, it's thrombogenic. It causes blood clots. And so we use a, a full adult aspirin uh, for every uh, patient. And then we can use more advanced blood thinners, such as uh, injectable low microwave heparin, or oral anticoagulants. And lastly, we have a, a trail on drug that we start and we continue for 30 days and it's called colchicine. This has been shown in a large trial from Canada, a cold corona trial in over 4,000 patients has significant reductions in hospitalizations and deaths. So we start out with the uh, monoclonal antibody infusions followed by intracellular anti-infectives, corticosteroids and colchicine, and then antithrombotic drugs. It sounds like a lot, uh, but doctors who are skilled in medicine can do it. It can be done by telemedicine. And this approach has saved thousands of lives and spared millions of hospitalizations. Wow. Um, do, do you think there have been um, unnecessary deaths as a result of bad advice coming from, uh, say, government authorities, maybe in the United States or in other countries? I mean, if these protocols, if these treatments were pursued more broadly, if they were uh, being recommended, would we have saved some lives? I testified in the U.S. Senate on November 19th because keep in mind there's an up, uptick of information and things aren't, weren't instantly known back in March. Um, in, in fact, with myself and others, we really didn't get things put together until April or May timeframe and it takes a while to publish. I estimated in November 19th that we could have saved half of the lives lost there are now current estimates that we're probably up to about 85% of all the lives that are lost could have been saved with what's called sequenced oral multidrug therapy. Oh my goodness, that's incredible! And uh, you know, now we're we're hearing a lot from authorities. I, I know the uh, the Biden administration just announced a three billion dollar program where they're going to be promoting these vaccines. 
uh, you know, they, they call them vaccines. We've talked to some doctors who, who kind of quibble with that with that use of that term. But uh, what are your thoughts on the the different COVID so-called vaccinations? Is this a wise thing Is it for everybody, for certain high risk people? What if you've already had COVID? Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, in our December 2020 paper, I published a, a figure that's been shown over and over again. It was shown in the U.S. Tenet called the four pillars of pandemic response. And the first pillar is contagion control, wearing masks and lockdowns. We've spent a lot of time on that. Early treatment we just covered, really the, the missing pillar. If we would have spent our efforts on sick patients, that would have had the highest public health value. The third pillar is in-hospital treatment. We did the best we could, but most of the deaths occur there. And the last pillar is vaccination. And so what happened in the United States is we uh, developed a game on, I think, our public health agencies uh, really that we were going to promote lockdowns and social distancing, what's called contagion control, and just have the population wait for a vaccine. So listeners would appreciate there's been no updates on treatment, even outpatient treatment, inpatient treatment. We don't hear about anything about sick patients. All we hear is about masking, lockdowns, and wait for a vaccine. Now, the vaccines are wildly promoted and far beyond any range of regulatory science. Uh, we knew the vaccines were actually being advertised on the radio before the trials were even done. We heard this on Walgreens and CVS telephone lines. Uh, that's actually against regulatory law. Uh, products that go through approval actually must be FDA approved before there's any adver advertisement for them. When they did come for approval, they got emergency use authorization approval, which is different than full FDA approval. EUA means a product can be used, just like the monoclonal antibodies can, but the government's providing no assurances with respect to safety or efficacy, none. And so uh, these products uh, are out there. Uh, the CDC is very clear on this. They're completely optional, completely optional. No one is obligated to uh, take these vaccines. It's simply if one wants to do so. And I think the great concerns is we haven't had fair balance on the vaccines with respect to efficacy and safety. And in fact, the government probably uh, can be viewed as not being a fair broker uh, to patients with respect to information. So the first points I'd make is in the randomized clinical trials in both the vaccine group and the placebo group, the, the attack rate of viral infection was less than 1%. It's very hard for any person to appreciate any probabilities below 1%. Once you're below 1%, it, you, it's hard to understand that you're way better than less than 1%. So the first point is that over two months, everything's less than 1%. So people have asked me, Dr. McCullough, what do you think the public health impact would be? I'd say, follow the science. It's going to be less than 1%. It was less than 1% in the clinical trials. Of course, it's going to be less than 1% in practice. The next question they asked me is, uh, Dr. McCullough, uh, do you think the vaccines will prevent uh, COVID-19? I said, well, in the clinical trials, the vaccine efficacy was 90%. But what we know, knew in the trials is that patients were unblinded. They knew they got the vaccine or they didn't because of the high rate of vaccine reactions in the arm where it's injected, about 80% rates. And so for that reason, far fewer patients even came forward with suspected infections in the vaccine arm because they felt that they were protected. So what we see now in real world data uh, from Denmark as an example and elsewhere, you know, studies that are much bigger than the original vaccine trials is the vaccine efficacy rates for the uh, messenger RNA vaccines is about 70%, 90%. And those for the uh, adenoviral uh, vaccines, AstraZeneca and J&J &J, currently paused or off most markets 
is closer to 60 to 70 percent. That's not bad. The influenza vaccine is about uh, uh, 30 to 40 percent effective. So it's certainly not bad, but I wouldn't want anybody to get the vaccine and think that they're being protected against COVID-19. Yeah, really. And um, as far as the risks go, uh, you know, we've been hearing a lot about the data coming into VAERS, the uh, the federal government's vaccine adverse reaction uh, data collection system. Um, yeah, from what I understand, just a, a tiny fraction of the actual adverse reactions are actually reported there. But we've already seen several thousand deaths reported that were at, at least associated, not necessarily proven to have been caused by the vaccine. But what are your thoughts on the risks? Are, are they being downplayed? Can we tell anything from the data that's coming into the virus system? And uh, would you urge people to pay attention to these risks? And, and on, on that topic, um, do you feel like patients are getting true informed consent? I mean, are, are doctors really explaining the, the potential risks of these uh, vaccines to their patients in a way that, that, in your view, is adequate? Well, let me state that the um, FDA, when it evaluates drug products or other biologic products, um, there are two assessments of causality. One is by the local doctor and then by the sponsor or the manufacturer of the product. The FDA doesn't opine on causality. FDA honestly doesn't uh, differentiate on whether they anybody thinks a death, with, for instance, was due to a product. But a typical new drug, for instance, at about five deaths, unexplained deaths, uh, we get a black box warning. Then your listeners would see that on TV, may cause death. And then at about 50 deaths or new product, uh, it's off the market. It's pulled off the market. And so we do have some uh, precedent for vaccines. In the 1976 swine flu pandemic, we attempted to vaccinate 55 million Americans in 1976. There were 500 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a, a ascending paralysis from the legs upwards, and 25 deaths. The program was killed at 25 deaths. We know annually with the influenza vaccine, multiple manufacturers, 195 million people vaccinated, uh, about 20 to 30 deaths are reported in through the VAER system. In the United States today, we have approximately 77 million individuals fully vaccinated, and uh, we have uh, 2602 deaths, 2,602 deaths. So it's unprecedented how many deaths have accrued. Previous studies indicate that maybe only 1% to 10% of, of all the adverse events are reported to the VAR systems for a couple of practical reasons. One is that uh, it takes a healthcare worker to actually access the system or uh, a loved one to call a healthcare worker and to make the entry. Most of the deaths occur on days one, two, and three. And so, and they're reported by healthcare workers. So some occur right in the vaccination center and the workers feel very responsible uh, and report it right there. Many times they're reported by nursing home workers or nurses that see patients back in the ER where patients present dead or undergo resuscitation and die. So they're all piling up on days one, two, and three. On March 8th, the CDC announced on their website with very little fanfare that they had reviewed about 1,600 deaths with uh, FDA doctors, they're unnamed, and they indicated not a single death was related to the vaccine. And I think that was concerning in the academic community. I have chaired and participated in dozens of data safety monitoring boards and, and uh, uh, critical endpoint committees. I can tell you that type of work would have taken many months to review all the laboratories, the uh, death certificates, and all the circumstances of event. It is impossible for unnamed regulatory doctors without any experience with COVID-19 uh, to opine that none of the deaths were related to the vaccine. So I think this was effectively a scrubbing. 
like we've seen elsewhere. Uh, there is a trusted news initiative, which is very important for Americans to understand. This was announced December 10th. And this is a coalition of all the major media and government stakeholders in vaccination, where they are not gonna allow any negative information on vaccines to get into the popular media uh, because they're concerned about vaccine hesitancy. That if Americans got any type of fair balance on safety events, that they simply wouldn't come forward voluntarily and get the vaccine. So the Trusted News Initiative is really troublesome because uh, we're now at record numbers of deaths. They continue to occur every day. My professional opinion, the safest vaccine on the market was the J&J &J vaccine. And that was pulled for very rare blood clotting events. We had seven uh, million people vaccinated, but the estimates are for the other two vaccines available, the blood clotting rates are probably 30 times that of J&J, &J, and they're going strong. A lot of Americans don't understand how tight these stakeholders are. Keep in mind, the National Institutes of Health is a co-owner of the Moderna patent. So they have a vested financial interest in keeping these vaccines going. So the United States government has made a decision along with the stakeholders, CDC, NIH, FDA, Big Pharma, World Health Organization, Gates Foundation, they have made a commitment to mass vaccination as a solution to the COVID-19 pandemic. And we are gonna uh, really be witness to what's gonna happen in history. We're sitting on right now, uh, the biggest number of vaccine deaths. There's been tens of thousands of hospitalizations, all attributable to the vaccine and going strong. Wow, that is uh, that, that's a serious issue. And we've experienced that ourselves. Actually, we've interviewed uh, a large number of doctors. And whenever a, a doctor raises even a question or a concern about the vaccines, uh, those things are being censored. They're being pulled down. We're being given strikes. And uh, you know, you'd think a doctor would be allowed to offer his or her professional opinion uh, without being censored by people in Silicon Valley. But uh, obviously, that's not the case anymore. And, and what they're telling us in, in the, you know, in the reasoning why they're pulling our things down, they're saying that it contradicts uh, what the World Health Organization has said. Uh, so it's, it's a very troubling time. Uh, doctor, in your opinion, uh, what is the way forward here? I mean, we're, we're hearing contradictory information. We're hearing some people say that, you know, we might be in this forever. I mean, we're, we're going to have to just completely change everything. We've had a Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum say that time will be measured from, uh, you know, B.C. before coronavirus and after coronavirus. We've got to get used to a new normal. Um, is there a way out of this uh, or are we stuck with this forever? Do we always need to wear face masks and, and social distance? I, where do we go from here? What's the most sensible approach for policymakers and for citizens to, to make our way out of this mess? I think what's going to happen is sooner or later, uh, we are simply going to recognize that COVID-19 is like any other respiratory illness. It's like the flu, pneumococcal pneumonia, staphylococcal pneumonia. That, in fact, we're going to recognize it, we're going to uh, treat it as an outpatient, and we're going to keep things under control. Fortunately, in the United States, early treatment did kick in in the fourth quarter of 2020. We saw simultaneous uh, really market reductions in uh, uh, new cases, hospitalizations, and death. The only thing they can do that is early treatment. Early treatment markedly reduces spread because it reduces the contagious time from about two weeks to about four days and allow somebody to be treated at home so they don't go spread it all over when they get hospitalized. So I can tell you at my hospital, we typically would have uh, 150 cases in the hospital, maybe 200. Right now we got 25. I mean, it's wonderful. Uh, we're at a plateau in the United States. Right now we have 45 to 60,000 new cases per day. Now that's inflated because the lab numbers that are positive included asymptomatic 
testing. It's really important for people to understand when we do asymptomatic testing, the vast majority of those positive tests are false positive. They're not real cases. So the tests were never FDA cleared for asymptomatic testing. In fact, my view on this, it should be banned. We should stop testing athletes and and tormenting people when they travel with asymptomatic testing. The tests were only FDA approved or FDA cleared uh, more appropriately for acute, acutely sick people. But I think we should just uh, recognize that it's going to be here and hopefully we won't get another big wave. We are seeing a tsunami right now in India. I think India is alarming and I'm predicting a complete total health calamity in India right now. Those curves are going straight up. The mass of infective people is enormous. Uh, we've had reports out of the UK now where uh, large numbers of uh, individuals have been vaccinated that they're anticipating 60 to 70% of their COVID cases being fully vaccinated patients, okay? Uh, so, and, and, and I've uh, certainly had those in my clinical practice, about 60% of my COVID patients that I've managed over the last two weeks have been fully vaccinated and the syndrome doesn't look any different. So unfortunately, the vaccine is partially effective, which is what we knew from the clinical trials. The vaccine has safety issues, which we knew from the clinical trials and we now know from the CDC VAERS uh, system. And your listeners should be aware, Alex, that there is a wonderful tool. It's called openvaers.com, and it gives a weekly update of all the safety data. That's the only place where America and uh, policymakers and others are going to get a fair shake in understanding safety because we have over 80 colleges now that have announced mandatory vaccinations. We have employers and others. And the only way that these uh, organizations can possibly see the implications of their decision-making is to go to openvaers.com and see the safety data. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that. So my last uh, uh, prepared question, uh, do you have any thoughts on the origins of this virus? You know, we, we've heard contradictory information. Originally, it was supposed to be from a bat from a, a food market in China. Uh, now, even you know, government officials have been saying it, it may have actually come out of a, of a laboratory in Wuhan. Um, you know, do you have any thoughts on this? I, I know you've studied this. You've actually done the hands-on work. Uh, is this like anything you've ever seen before? Do you think it was natural? Do you think it may have been engineered? What are your thoughts? Well, I'm familiar with the clinical signature of the virus where it causes uh, marked uh, elevations in certain unique inflammatory factors and blood clotting factors. It depresses the lymphocyte count. Uh, we know that code for the virus, parts of the code that were attempted to be used in an Australian vaccine turned the HIV tests positive in Australians. We know that uh, for sure. That's been reported. The best that I can put this together, this appears to be uh, a manufactured virus. I can't prove it. I'm not an expert. Um, I did have a chance to collaborate with Dr. Peter Bregan, who has a new book coming out, uh, We Are the Prey, and I believe it has uh, over 400 references. And you can uh, read that very carefully. Dr. Fauci was at the scene of the crime two years earlier in the National Virology Lab in Wuhan. Uh, and, and I think historians and journalists like yourself will piece this together and understand that this was probably bioterrorism that went wrong. A test tube uh, broke somewhere, someone got infected and then went to a fish market and it spread from there. Um, but interestingly, I think we're on the back end of, of bioterrorism. The original Wuhan strain called the wild type strain that hit America early on uh, now is basically gone. The most recent CDC estimates as of 
end of March is we have 14 different strains or mutant strains in the United States. And the most common one is the United Kingdom variant. The, the wild type is basically gone. The vaccines, by the way, are coded for the original Wuhan wild type virus. So the vaccines and they're very limited, um, uh, narrow type of uh, immunity. It's just against the spike protein. This is very important. It's not, there's no immunity against the nucleocapsid or polymerases. Uh, looks like very little cellular or innate immunity. It's simply a transient, very high spike antibody protection that these vaccines are, 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 are trying to offer to individuals. I think what your listeners should understand is the most immune individuals out there, the safest individuals are COVID recovered. COVID recovered patients appear to have robust, complete, and durable immunity, much like SARS-1, which is very similar to SARS-2. The immunity there is at least 17 years. And so a couple of things that have gone wrong in the regulatory environment, which are very disturbing, is that uh, in the clinical trials of vaccines, the FDA, Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, AstraZeneca, they strictly exclude COVID recovered patients, suspected COVID recovered patients, antibody positive patients in the Pfizer trial, pregnant women, women at childbearing potential. And when this is done in clinical trials, we never use these new products in these groups of patients because they haven't been studied. We don't know safety and efficacy. So the day these vaccines were approved and regulatory agencies uh, kind of gently recommended that, yeah, pregnant women, go ahead and get vaccinated. Younger women, get vaccinated. COVID recovery, get vaccinated. Wow, did we cross a regulatory line? So some have said these vaccines are going to be uh, imminently FDA approved. I hope they are, because then we can hold the FDA feet to the fire and say, wait a minute, why, why can we, we can't possibly allow pregnant women to be vaccinated. We can't possibly do that. We can't possibly have women of childbearing potential. COVID recovered for sure, because uh, A, there isn't a single study that showed COVID recovered COVID recover patients could benefit from a vaccine, not a single study. And there are at least two studies now saying that vaccinated immune COVID recovered patients just causes complications. They have two to three times the adverse event rate of COVID naive patients. So we're wasting vaccines on COVID recovered patients. They're the most immune and protected people in society. If we're going to have a passport system, the COVID recovered ought to have gold passports and maybe everybody else green or blue passports, but it's ridiculous for COVID recovered patients to be uh, huddling in fear, wearing masks. Uh, I, I noted during the Super Bowl that we had, uh, they announced a hundred vaccinated healthcare workers that led into the stadium and I immediately said, why didn't they fill it up with COVID recovered patients? They can't give the virus. They can't receive the virus. They could have shown that America's back. So something about the agenda being uh, executed is to not show patients sick with COVID-19, not offer them any treatment, and then when they recover from COVID-19, not to give them any credit. Wow. Uh, very sobering, Dr. McCullough. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, you know, before we let you go, do you have any final words of wisdom uh, for our viewers? You know, how, how does an average person deal with this? Do you have any health tips that might be beneficial? And where can people, I mean, you know, most of our viewers are not scientists, they're not doctors, they're probably not going to read through the scientific literature, but is there a website where people can learn more about you and, and find out what uh, what you're working on? Yes, they're, uh, the most valuable resource in the entire country right now is the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, AAPS online website. They fully support and endorse early treatment of COVID-19. They have the up-to-date protocols that patients can share with their doctors. They have a list nationwide of the treating doctors and treatment centers in each and every state, and that if patients can't 
get treatment from their doctors, to go ahead and access the telemedicine services, the nationwide telemedicine services in the back of the guide, which even have nationwide pharmacies, and we get medications shipped to patients overnight. But high-risk patients, probably about 25% of all adults should be treated to avoid hospitalization and death. And we should think about COVID-19 as, listen, this is about survival. This is war. We're not going to wait for large randomized trials, which aren't even planned. We're not going to wait for the FDA or NIH to sell it, tell us we can treat patients. We always treat patients way before there's any guidelines. I've never waited for the FDA to tell me anything to do. I mean, the FDA is a trailing indicator of what's going on. The NIH is not even a treating organization. I would never wait for the NIH to tell me whether or not I could treat somebody. So I think what's happened is doctors in the United States have become incredibly fearful. And I think fear over the course of a year has created all kinds of disturbed thinking. There are doctors that tell patients there's no treatment for COVID-19. Not true. There's doctors who say, I don't treat COVID-19. That's their prerogative, but they should refer to doctors who do treat COVID-19. There's doctors in the United States who give patients advice and tell pregnant women they should get the vaccine without any efficacy or safety data. Doctors would never do that for a new drug, never. There are doctors who tell COVID recovery patients they should get a vaccine. They would never do that based on the, the data. They wouldn't do it. So we have doctors that are really, at this point in time, off the rails. The medical literature is off the rails. Clinical practice is off the rails. And we've got to get it back. Um, right now, the vaccine program is voluntary. That's one of the problems. I think it should take a doctor's order because at least then we could hold doctors' feet to the fire with respect to safety, efficacy, and liability. Right now, when patients sign the consent for the vaccine, they indemnify the manufacturers and the individuals uh, administering the vaccine. When pregnant women give up all their maternal fetal rights. It's really extraordinary. Who's not off the hook, Alex, though, are the agencies and entities that are uh, potentially forcing individuals into this uh, vaccination. Remember, the CDC says it's elective. But as soon as we tell kids that in order to go to school or people to work or be employed, that they have to undergo vaccination, that's either pressuring, coercion, or the fear of reprisal. And that's that's violating all forms of medical ethics. It's violating the Nuremberg Code, uh, the Belmont Report. It's violating the principle of autonomy. I mean, the long arm of the law, I think, is going to have a field day against those entities that will force individuals into mass vaccination against their will with an uh, uh, emergency use or even FDA-approved vaccines. We don't make Jehovah Witnesses uh, get blood transfusions, and we don't force people to do things against their will um, unless, by law, they're an imminent threat, meaning we could force a patient with tuberculosis out of the workplace and, and have them undergo treatment. We could do that. But an asymptomatic person in no way could be considered an imminent threat for COVID-19. Yeah, well, Dr. McCullough, um, this has been tremendous. Uh, we are very grateful for you, for your work. Um, folks, this is important stuff. Uh, lives uh, are, are literally on the line. And unfortunately, you're not hearing this from uh, a lot of places where you would expect to to hear accurate and truthful information. So we hope you'll share this out. We hope you'll go check out the uh, the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons. We've had a lot of their people on as guests. It's a it's a phenomenal organization, and they really are diligently searching the truth. Uh, so is Dr. McCullough, and so are so many others. And uh, unfortunately, uh, they're not being heard as loudly and as clearly as they need to be. So, folks, it's up to you to help get this message out. We hope you'll share it with your friends, with your family, with your neighbors, but maybe with your doctor. Uh, you know, th this is one of the top 
top experts in the world. He's been published uh, more on this topic than anybody else in the field. And, uh, and you heard what he had to say. It was loud and clear. So thank you, folks, for watching. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for uh, staying with us. And uh, God bless you all.